Well, good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, if you're a guest with us, my name is Drew. I'm one of the elders and pastors here, and we take time right now to work through a portion of God's Word. So I invite you all to join me in the Gospel of Mark, and we'll be in chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one under the seats nearby you. And our text is on page 849 in those Bibles. Well, this morning we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. We took a break for a couple months for our summer series on overflowing generosity, and now we're re-entering into the Gospel of Mark where we left off, which is chapter 13. And as a reminder, we're calling this series The Way of Jesus because that summarizes the heart of the book. The Gospel of Mark is about two main themes, Jesus and discipleship. So first, Jesus, it's about who He is and what He came to do. It's about His identity as the one who is truly God and truly man, the very Son of God who's come to bring His kingdom into the world, and He does this through going to the cross. So the Gospel of Mark shows us Jesus on His way to the cross to be crucified and give His life for us in self-giving love. So the way of Jesus is the way of the cross, not just the way toward the cross, but the way of the cross, the way of self-giving love. And then the second theme in the Gospel of Mark is discipleship. Discipleship is following Jesus. It's learning from Jesus to become like Jesus. And so what do we find when we enter into this life of becoming like Jesus? Well, we find that the way of Jesus is the way to the cross and the way of the cross. And so that's the way that we pick up and live our own lives then, the life of self-giving and costly service and love. And so now we come to chapter 13, and this is a notoriously difficult chapter to understand. Faithful students of the Bible don't agree on how to understand this chapter, and so just at the outset, this is just a great reminder to us that it's okay to disagree with one another on matters that are not of first importance. So we talk about the relative importance of various uh, doctrines and practices uh, in the church, and we talk about that a lot, and one reason is to maintain unity together. So when we think about the future, which is what this chapter relates to, uh, when we think about the future and our ultimate future even today, a first-order issue, an issue of first importance, is that the risen Lord Jesus is going to return. He's coming back. He will renew all things. Now, there are a lot of details related to that that if you hear some people talk, their emotional state may make, you, may make it sound like these are issues of first importance, uh, but they're not. And so we need flexibility to disagree with one another on some of these smaller details. And so when we come to this text, we want to be flexible with one another. Uh, for myself, I've studied this text off and on for 15 years, and I have a mix of convictions about this. Um, I'm pretty sure about how to understand the first 23 verses less confident about the rest. So this morning we're going to look at the first 23 verses, so I have one more week to figure out the rest of the chapter, which I don't actually expect to be able to pull off. Um, the overarching purpose, though, is clear, and then we'll read this in just a moment. It is not to give us an exact timetable so that we can debate charts. The purpose of this chapter is for Christians to hold fast to Jesus through whatever trials may come. And for those who are overhearing this and reading this chapter who are not yet following Jesus, 
to be invited to follow him and to hold fast to him no matter what and no matter how hard things get. So let's read the Gospel of Mark chapter 13, the first 23 verses. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, verse 5 here, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Be on on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is... On the housetop, not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Verse 20, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Let's pray. Father, we receive this word from you. We believe this is your very speech to us, and it's holy, and it's true, and it's good. And so we pray that your spirit would take these words, and as we sung, plant it deep in us and transform us and open our eyes to behold your glory in Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen. Well, here's the main idea of this section we just read. Buckle up, because persecution is coming, and the temple is coming down. So there's three sections to this part that we read. In the first four verses, you can see that we're getting clear on the main topic. Jesus predicts that the Jewish temple that's standing right there in front of them will be destroyed. And then in verses 5 to 13, Jesus tells his disciples to get ready because persecution 
is going to be coming before that happens. And then in verses 14 to 23, Jesus tells them to get out of town when they see that the temple is about to come down. So we can summarize these three sections like this. Get clear, get ready, and get out. So let's walk through each one. So first, get clear. Jesus wants his disciples to be very clear about one main thing here, and that is that the temple is coming down. So Jesus and his disciples are walking out of the temple, and as they walk out of it, Jesus says that the whole thing's going to come down. So look again with me at these opening verses here. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Just think about how massive of a statement that is. The Jewish temple was at the very center of the history and life and culture of the nation. It was the heart of their religious, social, economic, and political life. And it was beautiful. They had an earlier version that was also beautiful that King Solomon had built centuries before, but that was destroyed hundreds of years earlier. And the current one that was before them was built by Herod. It took 46 years. It was massive. It was beautiful. And as Jesus walks out of it, he says, mark my words. This is going to be leveled flat. It's not entirely a surprise that he said this, if we've been reading along for the previous chapters here. It's been a few months since we've been away from the Gospel of Mark, so let me remind us of what happened. From the earliest chapters of the Gospel of Mark, we saw that the Jewish leaders were wanting to arrest Jesus and put him to death. I mean, as early as chapters 2 and 3, they hate the man. And then they start sending from Jerusalem delegations of leaders to spy on him, to catch him, to find reason to arrest him so that they can put him to death. And then in Mark 11, Jesus comes straight into Jerusalem. He's entering his final week, so Palm Sunday. He enters in Jerusalem, and then he entered into the temple, and he came with all of these symbolic actions and proclamation that he was the true king. So a few weeks or months ago, we saw that he was reenacting Psalm 118, where this Davidic king would enter to Jerusalem and enter into the temple, and the leaders were to receive this king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus enters, and all these people are, are quoting Psalm 118. The king is coming here, and then he enters into the temple, and there are no leaders welcoming him with joy. And so he enters the temple again, and he condemns the people there for their injustice, for their taking advantage of the poor, um, for not allowing this to be a place of prayer for the nations. He threw tables over in this symbolic statement of judgment. He cursed a fig tree and it withered, and that was a symbol of Jerusalem and the temple and the leaders withering in judgment. And then Jesus was confronted by the leaders for several days, and he debated them inside the temple. They wanted to trap him in his words so that they could arrest him and kill him, and he kept outsmarting them. And now he's leaving the temple for the last time, and as he leaves, a disciple draws attention to how beautiful the place is. And Jesus says, this place right here that 
we've been in these past few days? You see all these beautiful stones? All of them are going to come crashing down. And then he walked across the valley and up to the Mount of Olives in plain sight of this beautiful temple complex, and he sat down. And the disciples came to him and asked him a very reasonable question at this moment. Verses 3 and 4. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? That is the question or those two questions or the questions of the chapter. They want to know two things. They want to know when will this temple be destroyed and they want to know what are the signs that it's about to happen. And the rest of the chapter is Jesus' response to that curiosity. Now, before we go to the rest of the chapter, there's uh, something to consider about uh, this text in general. Sometimes the significance of this opening scene is missed when we go to think about how to understand the rest of what Jesus says. So here's what I mean. I'll just tell you my own experience briefly with this chapter. Before I studied this in depth, it was part of my normal Bible reading over the years in high school and first year of college or so. And I remember coming across this text from time to time. And when I did, I remember thinking, wow, some crazy things are going to happen sometime still in the future. It sounded very end timesy to me. But one of the basic principles of biblical interpretation and all good reading is to read in context. And what we've just seen in this, these opening verses here are, are the context for what Jesus says. He said, the temple is coming down and the disciples are simply asking very basically, when and how will we know this is going to happen? Now, before we go to the rest of the chapter then, here's three broad summaries of uh, three main views about the chapter. So here's some very untechnical ways to label three main views. The first view we can call the futurist view. So some people read this chapter and think that the whole chapter is, and we haven't read the whole thing, we'll consider the rest of it uh, next week, but they think the whole chapter is mainly speaking about the distant future, still yet future even today. They think that what Jesus describes is yet to happen even now. They think Jesus is describing something that will happen just right before he returns in the future. Usually this means that they believe that someday uh, the Jewish people will be back in their land, a temple will be rebuilt because it was destroyed, and at some point all the Christians alive will be removed or raptured from the earth to go to heaven, and then there'll be a period of several years of great tribulation, and that that period of tribulation is what Jesus is describing here. This view is not really common throughout most of church history. It's been most common in the late 1800s, early 1900s, especially in America. And it was popularized by books like the late great planet Earth a few decades ago and the Left Behind series. And a lot of wonderful people and Bible students uh, believe this. So second view is what we can call the first generation view. Some think that everything Jesus says in this whole chapter is about the first generation of Christians. They believe that everything Jesus talks about in this chapter happened in the first century. Jesus does say later in verse 30, all these things will take place before this generation passes away. So that'd be the first generation view. So you have a futurist view, first generation. And then the third view is what I'll call the mixed view. Some think Jesus is mainly talking about the first generation, but he also adds a bit about his second coming. 
And there's some debate about just what parts refer to as second coming. So just to be clear, here's where I am. I think our text this morning, the text we read, the first 23 verses, were all fulfilled in the first generation. Jesus said the temple is coming down, and he told them what to expect, and he said it would happen before that generation passed away, and that is what happened. Now, with these first 23 verses, uh, most of those who hold to the first generation view and actually the mixed view would agree. The question then comes in verse 24 and beyond, if Jesus does begin speaking a bit beyond the first generation about the very end of the age and the return of Jesus. So that's where the debate comes in, really, verse 24 and following, which is what we'll consider next week, and I'll figure out in the meantime if I'm still first generation or mixed on that. So I chose, chose to focus on the first 23 verses for this reason, not only because I feel more ready, but because this section seems to be the most clear. It really does, to, in my view, that this is about the first generation. And this is still relevant for today, but when Jesus says later in the chapter, in verse 30, that this generation will not pass away until these things happen, he wasn't wrong. These things did take place. So when we look at our text today, this is what we need to hear Jesus saying. This is not about the end of the whole world order. This is about the end of the Jewish order and age. This is the judgment that ends the old covenant era. Jesus is the new king. He's the new priest. He's the new temple. He's the new sacrifice. Everything has come to fulfillment in him. And since the Jewish nation as a whole and with its leaders rejected him, then all of it will end not with a pleasant transition to receiving Jesus as the fulfillment, but with a decisive judgment against them. So this is the first point. Get clear, the temple is coming down. So second, get ready, trials are coming first. And this is verses four or five to, verse 5 to 13. Jesus first tells them what to expect before the temple comes down. There are things that are so terrible that the disciples could think, surely the temple's about to come down. When these things happen, they're thinking, this has got to be right upon us. And Jesus is saying, these trials are going to be terrible, but the temple's not coming down yet. And Jesus describes six things that Christians should expect. These are six things that happened in the first generation before the temple was destroyed. The temple would be destroyed in A.D. 70. And so Jesus is speaking in the early 30s. So about 37 years after Jesus said these things, the temple was destroyed. So what he's explaining now is what's going to happen in the meantime until the temple is destroyed. So let's just walk through these. First, deception. After Jesus leaves, false leaders will claim to be him. This is verses 5 and 6. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they'll lead many astray. Now, this happened a lot in the first generation after Jesus left, and there was an uptick in this during the years right before the temple was destroyed in the, in the last years of the 60s. And there have been continued to be cult leaders who have done this through the ages. Second, disaster. This is verses 7 to 8. He says that when they hear about wars and earthquakes, they shouldn't be alarmed. Those things are to be expected, but it doesn't mean that 
the time has come. Now, it's interesting that so often today people hear of wars and rumors of wars and disasters, and they conclude, wow, we must be in the last couple of years. Jesus is coming. But Jesus literally said the opposite here. He said, when you hear these things, don't be alarmed. The end is not yet. And lots of these things did happen in that immediate era of the first generation. Third, persecution. He says that they'll be brought before councils, they'll be beaten in synagogues, they'll stand before governors to bear witness. And this happened to Jesus just a few days after he said this, and then it happened to the first generation of Christians in the book of Acts. And Jesus is saying, expect suffering, expect opposition to your faith in me. He doesn't promise the health and wealth prosperity gospel uh, that is still promised by many today. He promised persecution and hardship. Fourth, he promised mission. This is verse 10, which is interesting. He says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Now, this is one of the verses that make people think that he's talking about the whole church age, because we read this, and it doesn't sound at first like this happened in that first generation, does it? But I think it's reasonable to see that it did. By the end of the first generation, the gospel spread across the whole known world. It went south to Ethiopia, west to Spain, east to India, and far north. The Apostle Paul wanted to keep the gospel spreading further and further, further so not every single people group did receive the gospel in that first century, but it was saturating the whole known world. The trajectories were set, and it was spreading to the point where the Apostle Paul would make statements like this. He said in Romans 16, 26, that the gospel has been made known to all nations. It's the language he used. Very similar to what Jesus said would happen. He said in Colossians 1, 6, the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world. He said in Colossians 1.23 that the gospel was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So the gospel had further to go, but the trajectories are set. The saturation began so that Jesus is saying the gospel is first going to be preached to all nations, and Paul would say things like the gospel is preached to all nations, even though we know it still has further to go even today. Fifth, Jesus says to expect rejection. He says in verse 13 that family members will betray family members to death. And then he says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, in verse 13 here. This happened in the first century. Christians were often shamed and rejected and hated. They were viewed as superstitious. They were viewed as against humanity and the common good, even though that wasn't true. Claims that are also around still today. Finally, Jesus tells them to expect endurance. Look at verse 13. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So this is ultimately an encouragement. All through this section, Jesus has repeated a certain word over and over. It's the word will. These things will happen. Wars will come. Disasters will come. Persecution will come. You will be hated. And this is the final one. The one who endures to the end will be saved. It's a promise for those who endures. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. All true Christians, all those who will be saved in the end, are those who persevere. Saving faith is a persevering faith. If you abandon Jesus, if you don't persevere to the end, you won't be saved. Because true faith is a persevering faith 
All who persevere to the end will be saved. And Jesus gives this great promise. So, they want to know, when is the temple coming down? And Jesus says, well, get ready because persecutions and trials are coming first. So third, get out before Jerusalem falls. So now he tells them how they'll know when the temple is about to come down. So in verses 14 to 23, we now see the destruction of the temple, which happened in AD 70. Leading up to this, all these things we just talked about, those are things that Jesus says, expect these things, but don't be alarmed because it's not coming down yet. These things are going to happen. But now we, say, we see the sign that it's about to happen. So look at verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So what is the abomination of desolation? Well, do you see what it says right after that? It says, let the reader understand. What an interesting phrase. That's probably a reference to those who read the prophets. So he's saying, he's saying this thing's going to happen, this abomination of desolation is going to stand where he ought not, and then he says, let the reader of the prophets understand. The reader of the prophets will know what I'm talking about. This phrase, the abomination of desolation, is in the prophets. It's in Daniel, in the Old Testament. So Daniel used this phrase to refer to something that was future to Daniel, which was Antiochus Epiphanes and what he would do in the temple in 168 BC. He was a pagan ruler who overtook Jerusalem in this terrible scene, and then he went into the temple, he set up an altar to a false god, and he sacrificed pigs on it. So this was an abomination that caused desolation in the temple, and Daniel indicates this is coming, and when you read this in Daniel, you also, in my view, get the sense that this is going to be a pattern that will be repeated again. It's going to happen with Antiochus Epiphanes, and it did, but it's going to happen yet again. And now Jesus is saying, you know it happened once, and it will happen again, and he says, when you see this happen, let the reader of Daniel understand, you better get out of town. Run for the hills if you're in Judea because it's going to get ugly and make it quick. Now, I mentioned that when I read this in my early years as a Christian, I assumed that this was um, still kind of an end times event uh, today, but I had no idea about the history of what actually happened in AD 70, about 37 years after Jesus said this. Um, I had no clue, so it was just this bizarre, terrible description Jesus described that I figured must have never happened, and I think it was when I was listening to R.C. Sproul or reading something R.C. Sproul wrote years ago, maybe 15 years ago, 17 years ago, and he just described what happened actually with the destruction of the temple, and I'm looking at, you know, Mark 13 or Matthew 24 and listening to this, I'm like, wow, that that's about what happened. Um, it actually maps onto here. So here's what happened. The historian Josephus described it. It was awful. There, was sev there were several years leading up to AD 70 that were tumultuous in the Roman Empire. One emperor took over after another in succession. There was murder and violence and plotting and civil war. And some Jewish zealots had entered into the temple in the 60s and desecrated it. And then the Roman army besieged Jerusalem and in that year, about a million Jews died in the region. Many of them died from starvation. Some ate their own children to stay alive. 
Many died from fighting among themselves as Jewish factions actually got stirred up in light of this terrible time and they fought each other. Thousands of them were crucified by the Romans. It was reported that they ran out of wood for crucifixes because they were crucifying so many of the people. And then Titus, the Roman general, went into the temple and the soldiers set up their banners and they sacrificed pagan sacrifices in the temple. So Jesus is saying, when you see the temple desecrated, get out. Get out of Judea. And he says this will be an unequaled time of tribulation. Verse 19, he says, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Now, that may sound like it's an overstatement if it's describing this event, but it really was an unparalleled half year. And for those who think this might be an end times event here described, notice Jesus adds it's an unparalleled time of tribulation and it never will be this bad again. He's saying that this is the worst it's been and ever will be, implying that history is going to continue a bit after this, but it's not going to be this bad as, as described in this event. It's a critical judgment within history, not only because of the physical devastation, because of, but because of what this represented with the decisive end of the Jewish era. I mean, everything changed for the Jewish people after this. They've never recovered. I mean, the whole Jewish religion's built around the temple and sacrifice, and they've never recovered from this. So let me summarize here. Jesus has spent days saying that the temple and the Jewish leaders will be judged. Then he explicitly walks out and says, this temple is coming down. His disciples ask when and how will we know it's about to happen? And then Jesus describes it and everything Jesus describes happened. In verse 30, which is later in the chapter, Jesus says all these things would happen in that generation and they did. The generation at that time was viewed as 40 years and this happened just toward the end of 40 years from when Jesus said it. So next week we'll look at the rest of the chapter And he may turn attention to the second coming at that point, but certainly up through verse 23, he's preparing his disciples for their lifetime, what they can expect in that first generation. Now, one response to all of this might be, some of you may be thinking, this was fascinating. Some of you might be thinking, how is this relevant then? If this already happened... What's the big deal? Why do we need to know it? So let's wrap up with five ways this matters. First, because we can still expect many of these kinds of trials to happen to us. The Christian life that Jesus described for that first generation is not a description that's exclusive for that first generation. It's the same throughout history. The trials didn't stop They just began in the first generation, and they continue beyond through the centuries. So remember the six marks of that first generation. There will be deception, people claiming to be false Christ. There'll be disaster with wars and famines. There'll be persecution against Christians, which has been the norm throughout church history, even if it hasn't been experienced in America as much or differently than other places. Mission, the gospel will advance, and it continued to. Rejection endurance. All of these were present in the first generation, and they continue every generation. And the Apostle Paul seems to indicate 
in his letters to the Thessalonians that there will be another repetition yet again in some form of this abomination that causes desolation. A rebellious antichrist figure will rise up against God's people right before Jesus returns. So even what Jesus is describing here, which is the first century, is yet a pattern again of what will happen on a broader scale of some sort. So what we see in the first century here is a pattern that continues. That's one reason why this matters. Second, we then need the same endurance to en- uh, encouragement to endure. Look, look back at this section and notice how Jesus exhorts them. Just a few uh, phrases to note. Look at verse 5. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Jesus' burden is that his people won't be tricked into thinking that he's come back as people claim to be the Messiah in his name. And that does keep happening. I've met people who I'm convinced really believe that they're Jesus or they're just trying to deceive people. Either way, they're wrong. And cults are started by these people and lead plenty of people astray. And Jesus is saying, don't fall for it. Verse 9, look, be on your guard because persecution's coming. So a lot of Christians are disillusioned when hard things happen to them, especially because some people lead Christians astray by telling them to expect health, wealth, and prosperity if you just have enough faith. And then they're totally disillusioned when hardship comes, and they even are living faithfully for Jesus, and as a result of faithfulness to Jesus, hardship comes. But Jesus promised that would happen. In verse 13, he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So as we experience all these kinds of hardships, and no matter what may continue to grow and develop in our own cultural context here, which trajectories are not looking good, as we've talked about often these past few years, we need to endure. We need to hold fast to Jesus. So we need the same encouragement to endure. Third, these warnings are coming from the heart of Christ, and so they tell us something about Him. We see the kind heart of Christ throughout His ministry, which we spent months looking at earlier in the Gospel of Mark. Him, he's healing the blind. He's giving people their lives back. He's having compassion on the crowds. He's drawn to those with disabilities. And then we read in this chapter what He says, and it can feel at first totally different. But look at the last verse that we, in our section here, in verse 23. He says, be on your guard. I have told you these things beforehand. Do you see what he's doing? He's telling them beforehand so they're not thrown off, so they're not caught off guard, so they're not led astray, so they don't shipwreck their faith. He's loving them. This too comes from his heart to give expectations, realistic expectations. Can you imagine, actually, if Jesus didn't say these things ahead of time? He goes to the cross, he's risen, he's gone. The disciples are like, okay, kingdom's here, let's spread the gospel. And then their friends are dying because they're following Jesus. And then all of a sudden, you know, the Jewish temple is, there's, there's, the armies are surrounding it, and people are dying all over the place, and Christians are caught up in this and dying. They're like, what is going on? Don't you think Jesus could have said something about this? So it's his heart that shows that he does want us to know, so we're not caught off guard. Fourth, Jesus is inviting us to follow him. He's not calling us to go somewhere where he's not gone already. The very trials that Jesus is calling us to endure, 
He himself endured faithfully, and he did it for our salvation. He said here, you'll be brought before councils and tried, and you'll be flogged by Jewish leaders, and you'll bear witness before governors. That, that's a description of Jesus' next few days after saying these things. And he was going to do far more than he asked of us because he was about to be consumed under the wrath of God on the cross for our sins and failings. So, if you're not yet a Christian, I want to encourage you with this. This whole section may have sounded just discouraging. And so, the question this raises, why would someone want to follow Jesus into this kind of hardship? And here's two reasons. First reason is this, because Jesus endured hell on the cross for us so that no matter how hard it gets in this life, it's actually the worst it will ever be forever for us. Because if you follow Jesus through the hardships, but He is your Savior, it means that you have an eternity of joy with Him and His people in a new creation forever, and the suffering will all be one day a thing of the past. He loves you. He invites you to trust Him. He gives you forgiveness. And so we now follow in his footsteps, enduring suffering, as we heard with the testimony just this morning about the suffering of, of life, that Jesus will bear that and carry it for us and be with us through it. And we know that after this life, a better life's coming. Second reason is that this judgment that Jesus spoke of as coming upon the temple in Jerusalem, it's a prelude to a broader judgment to come for all of creation in all of humanity. He will one day judge the whole world, and there will be nowhere to run. There will be nowhere to hide. But He Himself promises to be our refuge, the very judge, to be our refuge if we trust Him, if we'll have Him. So, He invites you to trust Him today. And then finally, final reason why this is relevant for all of us, it's because this reality cultivates hope for our coming new creation. Did you notice what Jesus called all these trials and tribulations? He used a really peculiar phrase. Look at verse 8. He called them the beginning of the birth pains. Isn't that interesting? The trials are like the pains of a woman who's in labor. The Old Testament described the coming new creation as a new birth. The world would be in labor pains of trials and tribulation but it would give way to a new creation, the renewal of all things. And Jesus is saying, all of these trials, all of these tribulations are a transitional period. The world is going to be in upheaval because the end of the old age is crumbling and the new creation is already broken into the present and we're now in an era of transition where the world is in labor pains, but there's a new creation that's going to be coming a new birth of the whole world. And so the point is, no matter how hard it gets, hold fast to hope. Yes, it's been 2,000 years now. It's a very long period of labor pains. But the point still remains. We are nearer now than even that first generation was. And Jesus will come and make all things new. And so Jesus is giving us hope here that no matter how hard it gets, it's a transition into the beautiful new world that he's bringing. So let's pray and give thanks to him. Father, we 
thank you for your word, and we thank you for giving us help to understand it. We thank you for the hope that you give us. We do look forward to this new creation to come. And though you call us to enter into these labor pains, uh, we pray that you would cause us by the Spirit to be on guard, to hold fast, to endure, to not be led astray. And we pray that as we do this, we would be a beautiful light to our communities as those who are holding fast to our Lord through this with great hope. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.